Hello and welcome to this Euractive hybrid conference with the support of the Take a Council. Thank you very much for joining us today in person and online all across Europe. I'm Jennifer Baker. I will be your moderator today, guiding you through the discussion which is on the EU's Directive on Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence, which, as we know, was set forward by the European Commission last year. But with trialogue negotiations set to begin in the coming months, we think now is a great time to take stock, look at where we are and ask how can we strike the right balance between business, consumers and investors. We would ask you to put your questions to our panellists using Slido. You can find that online or those following online can use the box or indeed you can scan the QR code that you can see there on your screen to join the debate or go to slido.com and put in due diligence. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So, as I say, we have an excellent lineup for you today. So let me introduce you to our speakers. Next to me, we have Dan Dionisi, who is the head of Unit for Company Law at the European Commission at the Directorate General for Justice and Consumers, or DG Justice, we know and love it. And this unit is the lead on the commission for this directive. Heidi Hauswiller is the MEP and substitute in the Jury Committee at the European Parliament to give us the side of the other legislator. Maria Therese Pisani is from the OIC Trade Facilitation Section Chief at UNEC. Vincent van der Loize is a Senior Research and Advocacy Officer at Finance Watch. Finance Watch is an NGO founded on the request of the European Parliament and will give his reaction to what we see is happening. He's been working on this since the financial crisis in 2008. And Pascal Benzencron is in charge of International Public Relations for the SGS Society Générale de Surveillance, which is a member of the TIC Council who are supporting us here today. So thank you all very much for joining us. Let me start, Dan, with you. Our overarching question is how to strike the right balance. Give us your perspective, first of all, on this directive and whether, give us a hint now in the opening remarks about whether you think it is striking the right balance. Thank you, Jennifer, and uh, very happy to be here. Uh, like very much this uh, format. Um, I would start from your title, striking the right balance for, uh, you have businesses, consumers, investors. Um, I think it's very important to strike the right balance, but we have to also take the bigger picture. So it, uh, we, we have to also think um, of workers. Uh, we need to also strike the right balance for local communities, for uh, our non-EU uh, partners, also uh, for the environment and for future generations. So we need to, to, to think of this balance in, in, in the broader context. And uh, from that point of view, I would argue that uh, the proposal that the Commission put forward uh, last year, which is now in full negotiations in trilogues with the co-legislators, the Council and the Parliament, is very balanced from this point of view. Um, it has, uh, let's say, uh, balance and proportionality at its core. And uh, just to give, uh, uh, let's say, one example referring to the scope, um, it targets directly around 13,000 companies in the EU, plus uh, another 4,000 uh, which are non-EU but uh, with significant presence uh, on our market, which are well below, let's say, a tenth of a percent of uh, the entire number of companies that we have in Europe. But these companies, because they are the largest ones, 
together with their value chains, they account for half the economic activity. So it's, it's really a matter of proportionality targeting where, where, where that makes a difference. We have a lower threshold for some high impact sectors. So specific sectors where risks are also higher in terms of negative impacts on human rights and the environment. So while we are having this, this uh, rather targeted approach, then when it comes to uh, the coverage of uh, value chains, so we apply the duties of due diligence to the entire value chains, uh, both upstream and downstream of, of these companies across the world. And um, uh, the, the, the type of um, uh, duties that, uh, that are imposed on them um, they, they are referring to all the sectors, they are applicable to all the sectors, so we, we are trying to, to really capture uh, the, let's say, a significant uh, critical mass, to, to reach a critical mass so that we can, we can generate change. So I will stop here and uh, happy to, to follow the discussion. Thank you very much. Well, Heidi, we know how this works. As Dan has said, the Commission, it holds consultations with all the stakeholders, tries to come up with the best efforts for a balance, and then it goes to the Parliament, and you pick holes in it and find places where it could be improved. Yeah, well, in fact, uh, we have to go um, all the way back to 2017, when uh, a cross-party group of MEPs started informal discussions on uh, how to come to a mandatory uh, uh, law on uh, due diligence for, for the European Union and um, uh, we were very pleased when uh, Commissioner J Reinders uh, announced uh, in this Corona Spring in 2020 that yes the Commission will come up with a proposal. So we felt that the, our groundwork which we had done also from the Parliament side informally with a huge number of different stakeholders from civil society to to labor unions, uh, to uh, progressive companies of all sizes from all sectors who said now is time to create the level playing field. Because what we had seen that the uh, EU member states were already starting this wave of uh, putting in place national laws. So I'm just saying that there was a number of years when a lot of work was done to inspire the Commission to come up with a legislative proposal. Uh, including uh, the, the own initiative report uh, in 2021 by our colleague Lara Walters, who's now the rapporteur of, of the legislation as well. So um, I think um, there have been a lot of listening and learning, and also learning how to best strike this balance that you, you called for in your, your first questions. And I believe that uh, we are on the way to achieve that. And, um, Yes, I, I'm confident that uh, with these trilogue discussions that I guess a lot of people are now following with, with keen interest, that we manage to, to come to a final outcome, hopefully towards the end of the year. Mm -hmm. But it's, I, I can assure you that it's not due to lack of ambition from the European Parliament that this would not happen. Oh, and the pressure is also on the Spanish presidency to, to get mm -hmm. this through. Um, Maria Teresa, uh, tell us a bit about the, the UN uh, Economic Commission for Europe perspective. It's, it's a bit more global. You can take a step back and maybe play devil's advocate. Yes, thank you very much. And uh, as mentioned, I, I would link up to two points. So due diligence across whole value chain and the need for a level playing field. Now in critical sectors for the digital and circular transition, 
uh, value chains are global, and that's why you need uh, you know actors uh, and action. Uh, at the global level, especially because uh, environmental social governance impacts and risks and hotspots actually are happening, especially in the upstream part of the value chain. If we talk uh, deforestation, if we talk carbon emissions, CO2 emissions, if we talk use of uh, child and forced labor, uh, if we talk use of hazardous chemicals, mostly this is happening in the upstream part of the value chain and in, uh, let's say, um, uh, areas uh, geographically located in developing countries and transition economies. So if we want to do due diligence, if we want to have a, a level playing field, definitely we need to have the engagement across the whole value chain beyond what's happening in the European Union and definitely uh, having standards that go global and ensure, uh, you know, cooperation uh, along the whole value chain. So that's what we have been doing at uh, UNEC, at the Economic Commission for Europe of the United Nations. We have been partnering with the European Commission, DG INTPA, uh, to develop, um, let's say, an initiative and a standard for traceability and transparency of ESG compliance end-to-end -end value chain. So from the farm through the manufacturing to branding and retailing and placing of products uh, on, on the final market and came up with a, a global standard and methodology that enables that. We have tested that uh, in uh, priority sectors, uh, which is the textile and leather, and now moving into agri and critical raw materials. And what we have learned is that uh, this is definitely complex and costly, and especially for SMEs, uh, vulnerable actors, uh, small actors. It takes collaboration along the value chain. If you have international and global standards, those enable that collaborative, uh, uh, let's say, um, approach along the value chain, that trusted exchange of data and information that are key uh, to, um, let's say, enable also formulation of claims that can be on final products placed on market that can be trusted by consumers, but also investors and regulators. Uh, so I, I will uh, uh, stop it here and uh, more points to share in the discussion. Absolutely. And um, we're going to pick up on some of the, the points you've raised there in our discussion. Vincent, as I said, uh, Finance Watch was set up in response to the financial crisis. Why does it care about sustainability and human rights? Thank you, thank you, Jennifer, and thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure to be to be here. Uh, when I, I saw the question, do we set the right balance? Uh, I would say that it will depend whether we're talking of the proposal from the Commission, the text position firm from the Council, or the position from the Parliament. And because you probably know that uh, financial services, we have big question on whether or not they're going to be fully in scope or not, notably on the, the requirements for, uh, for due diligence. But uh, maybe starting with the, uh, the text from, uh, from the Commission, uh, Finance Watch was, of course, very much supporting ambitious uh, text for the, the good reason that we do believe that CSDD is one of the most important pieces of regulations in the context of the sustainable finance agenda, in the sense that it is going beyond transparency, it is setting specific targets, targets that companies in scope will need to reach, to reach in terms of transition plans, and also in terms of managing the adverse impact that they have on the environment and human rights. Um, we had basically three big priorities when we saw the, the, the text from the, from the Commission. The first one was to ensure that 
when talking of transition plans, we do talk of the same transition plans as the one that we have into CSRD, the one that we hope we will have into the prudential requirements, so CRR, CRD, and Solvency II. We want to make sure that we, we keep it's a certain consistency so that on the one hand, we do not increase the burden for the financial sector, but also that we clarify what we, we mean and that we actually really reach uh, the targets, let's say, of the, the Paris Agreement. On this point, I must say that we are quite optimistic in the sense that there is, let's say, a consensus that it is an important uh, topic that we need to make sure that we keep it consistent with CSRD, notably. Uh, but there is another point. Uh, the second point that I wanted to mention is uh, about the incentives that we have to ensure that the companies, and notably the financial services, will actually implement the requirements of CSRD. Into that, we have different points. We can have incentives really with requirements that will apply to the, the companies, typically on remuneration. This is a point that we really want to, to be seen, meaning linking the variable remuneration of the directors with the achievement of the, the transition plans to make sure that those transition plans are also based on credible targets. And so we want to make sure that we do have an actual commitment and that we, we push the, the companies to meet the commitments. We have also other points, notably on civil liability, where we know that it can be a bit more uh, difficult. We, we know that co-legislators are a bit more divided uh, also. Um, but generally speaking, I think this is very important that we know that some countries have already implemented due diligence requirements, but what we have seen is that sometimes the enforcement of those requirements was not properly done. Beyond the incentives, of course, we need to make sure that we clearly identify the right supervisors for it. Talking of the financial services, we want to make sure that we clarify the responsibility from the EBA, from the ECB, linked to the prudential requ requirements, but also the, the, rules of other the, the role of other uh, supervisors uh, for the, the supervision of the, the requirements. And I will be brief for the, for the, the, the last point. There's a big question mark at the moment, which we understand has not been discussed yet at the level of the trilogues. It is the inclusion of financial services into the due diligence requirements. Uh, we are very much supportive of acknowledging the role of financial services to enforce due diligence. And uh, in that context, we are very much supportive of what the parliament has proposed, meaning that they have acknowledged, let's say, the difference between the role of asset managers and institutional investors and the financial services where we do see that there is a contract with the client. Thank you. Um, Pascal, uh, the TSE Council is uh, representing independent testing and inspection and certification companies worldwide uh, and you personally have been involved in this area for more than 25 years. Give us your perspective, your overall assessment of the proposal from the Commission and the direction of travel at the moment. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. I'm very happy to, to be here. Uh, yes, the TIC, the TIC Council presents 100 companies, and we are present in 160 countries with maybe close to 1 million uh, technicians and experts uh, in all these countries. So, and, and we are uh, also recognized third party, independent third party for the verification uh, of compliance with the standards. So, uh, I would say that the key words here is global. We are really global, and I think we can help 
uh, to, 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 to the implementation of this directive uh, in the field and we can provide the support to the, to the supply chain uh, to provide the training, uh, which is a big part of what we do, not only the, the, the verification, but also help uh, to build uh, expertise uh, within the supply chains. Well, thank you. I'm going to move Dan back to you to ask about uh, data. I think uh, Vincent mentioned it, but how can the sorts of clear standards we're talking about help collect this relevant data that we need to see from companies, and, and how is that going to fit into the directive? Yeah, I think uh, maybe some some of the other panelists are are, are better placed, but uh, to to answer this question, so I, I might compliment, but. Okay, uh, Marie-Therese. Okay, thank you very much, Jennifer. Maybe I'll start because actually that's what exactly we have been working on at uh, UNEC, uh, an information exchange standard that uh, uh, supports verification of compliance with environmental social governance criteria and requirements end-to-end uh, -end along the value chain. Why international standards are important? It's because uh, um, you know the, the actors along the value chain need to speak the same language and need to have a common understanding of what sustainability ESG requirements are. Uh, and if you want to have at the end, uh, you know, the, the product place on market with a claim uh, on the sustainability circular performance of that product that can be really trusted by consumers and ver verified uh, by any actors, including regulators, you need to have uh, data that are collected and exchanged according to a standardized definition. So the business and data model that supports that information exchange, the verification of, of claims on products, need to be based on international standards. And actually that also fosters collaboration and trust uh, along value chain actors, because one of the challenges we have been really experiencing with, impl experiencing with implementation of uh, pilots and uh, use cases uh, for specific products is the issue of data privacy, data security, uh, is the issue of trust among value chain actors. I mean, it's not easy, uh, you know, that actors are happy to share uh, data because it's a competitive asset for them. Uh, so when you have international uh, standards and this common understanding, that uh, uh, encourages trust. Uh, including on how these data uh, are exchanged and are protected, uh, including on how, uh, on the interoperability of information exchange systems. Because data are definitely there. They are available, but they are in silos. That's what we see. Uh, so you need to have the different information exchange systems where these data sits uh, to talk to each other, to be interoperable uh, between each other. And, and that's why uh, international and global internet, uh, information exchange standards are so vital to enable and to support the due diligence end-to-end -end along value chains that are global, complex and fragmented. Pascal, perhaps you could build on that because obviously this is what's, what's setting, our, setting us in the direction of this directive in the first place. This is the whole underpinning. Yes, obviously this is key to, for us to have key standards because this is going to facilitate our work and facilitate the communication and we are going to speak a common language with, with all the supply chain. We've been involved, I mean we are involved as a TIC council uh, uh, with the with the the, uh, the development of these standards, and and for example, we have worked with EFRAG uh, in the the working group uh, that work on the ESRS uh, that were published in in July. 
so this is the, the, the I can only uh, <laughs> go into the same direction than you. And, and what I would like to, 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 to emphasize here is the importance of having a very precise and clear standard, and that's what we are trying to, to, to help uh, the regulator to define this clear, as clear as possible, because once we are in the field, we have to work very fast uh, and to ensure the, that the quality of data are up to the expectations. Heidi. I think uh, the other side of the coin is that um, each company has uh, its own unique uh, operating environment. And um, what has been said to me uh, sounds very much like uh, reporting standards, but the due diligence is something beyond. So each company, according to UN guiding principles on business and human rights, has to identify the most salient risks from its value chain. And that's a bit, I, I don't say it's art, but, <laughs> but it's a kind of a unique exercise where the whole uh, company uh, from the very top has to be engaged to make sure that those risks are identified and that they are then um, to its best capacity avoided, uh, prevented, and then if uh, things uh, will go wrong, remedied and eradicated. So. Um, I understand the importance of standards, but um, um, I also don't think that this is a, any kind of tick-the-box exercise. But maybe the Commission could clarify a little bit. Yes. <laughs> um, of course, standards, and we've been working on standards, standards are important for companies to know what kind of information uh, they need to provide um, and uh, to ensure indeed comparability, interoperability. Uh, but uh, of course, every, every business uh, has its own characteristics and there is, uh, uh, let's say, the, in the way this uh, legislation is designed, there is uh, absolutely sufficient space for the businesses to evaluate their own risk, to take a risk-based approach, to put their resources where it makes most sense for them. And we are really looking to, to maintain, let's say, the right set of incentives so that they do the right thing that makes a difference on the ground. It's certainly not about ticking boxes, not about creating uh, a new industry of uh, you know, certifiers and auditors, mm -hmm. and so, but about uh, making sure that the situation improves across the value chains, even in remote parts of the world. Vincent, um, well, I think there's a general consensus here on, on, on the aspirations. Outline for me if you see any particular challenges or hurdles ahead um, with regard to taking the next steps into implementation. I know we don't have a final text yet, but uh, try, try and predict what's going to happen. Um, I will say um, maybe I'm going to start for changing with the, the question on transition plans. Uh, because we have that Article 15 that requires companies to have such uh, transition plans. Uh, and I will talk of standards, but not the standards that we have uh, in CS3D, but the standards that we, we have in the uh, CSRD. Uh, I, I do believe that right now the companies are, will be requested to report information that will be critical, but also extremely useful for financial institutions and probably to develop their own transition plans. And so talking specifically for transitions plans, I think that this should be, I will say, uh, yes, this is going to be a challenge. This is going to be a challenge, but there will be the tools. 
Uh, we're talking of uh, CSRD. CSRD, we know that companies in the scope will have to report on the greenhouse gas emissions, whether we're talking of scope one, scope two, and scope three. I will not get too much in the, the technicalities. So they will have some information. Of course, it will not be sufficient because we take financial institutions, they may invest directly into companies, but they also have different types of exposures, typically in real estate, they may have lending portfolios as well. So this will not be sufficient. And uh, I think that the Commission has actually done the, the right job in the sense that they have also worked into helping the institutions to know how to go further on the development of the transition plans. We have seen notably back in, in June of uh, this year that in the sustainable finance package, the, uh, the Commission has uh, actually released uh, some expectations or recommendations on different legislative tools that could be used to actually implement that uh, specific Article uh, 15 on uh, CS3D. Well, Dan, let me come back to you, um, and you can, you can weigh in on transition plans if you want, but I'm interested to know, in obviously the Commission holds consultations, you get early warnings about where you think companies or businesses are going to struggle, um, and what are you asking them to change? What needs to be borne in mind um, for you when you're setting this out, and, and for now, as, uh, as Vincent says, as companies look at the proposal and think, what are we going to have to do? Mm. Well... Um it's important to be very clear about uh, what is expected from them. And um, that's why currently in, in the trilogues, uh, you know, as, as we speak, very much uh, of the discussion is, uh, is focused on the exact due diligence duties and how they are defined uh, to make it both practical and feasible, understandable for companies uh, in terms of what are the expectations. The CSDD itself is more about the behavior, so what we expect them to do. Right? So the, the reporting part is, is covered, as was mentioned, uh, by, by the CSRD. So, you know, we, the, the expectations of, of what they have to do is, is, uh, is spelled out there, and uh, the challenge now is to make it uh, clear, specific enough, actionable enough, for them to, uh, to be able to implement. Of course, uh, there will be, and uh, it's also a commitment in, in the text, uh, there will be support measures, there will be guidelines uh, issued. So once we know the final version that will be adopted, of course, uh, all the focus will be, uh, you know, we have this, uh, this window of about two years until the member states uh, uh, transpose uh, the directive in their legislation um, to, to develop the right tools uh, for the industry uh, to be able to implement. And for this, we are, of course, in touch uh, with uh, many actors from various sectors. And, uh, yeah, we, we are looking at the situation and uh, trying to see where are the gaps that need to be filled uh, as soon as possible. Sorry, Maria Therese. Yeah, very briefly, when it comes to the change that companies need to make, I mean, uh, working with the companies from the brands, uh, retailers, uh, and the whole chain of suppliers, what we see is that the change needs to happen within companies, and you need to have uh, not only the top-level commitment, you, you need to have uh, 
real, uh, let's say, collaboration within companies of the sustainability, um, uh, you know, departments with the purchasing, procurement, uh, IT, uh, marketing, uh, supply chain management department. So it's a whole, let's say, uh, change that needs to happen. Uh, the way sustainability is really done uh, within companies. And then uh, across the, the value chain, downstream actors, brands and retailers where, uh, you know, profit margins are higher, they need to uh, engage very proactively with their supplier base, especially upstream, especially the SMEs, engaging uh, with uh, practical support, with coaching, with training, with incentives, uh, price premiums that need to go upstream the value chain uh, to uh, incentivize, especially the, those actors that are uh, in developing emerging uh, countries, those that invest, they need to get price premiums, they need to get uh, rewards uh, for the effort they do. We have done uh, an important project in Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan is a very interesting case of a country that uh, has been banned for the exports of cotton due to systemic use of child and forced labor for more than 10 years. The country, with support of international organizations, has gone through massive reform programs and uh, the ban has been now lifted. We engage with Uzbekistan, what we hear from them, okay, we have done these huge investments. No one is really coming right now to purchase uh, cotton or cotton-based products from Uzbekistan because of uh, reputational risk that is still there. So we have done the investment. Where is the price premium? Where is the market access? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we, we, we do certain requirements, but then uh, where is the support and the incentive when these requirements are met, when the effort is made? And this is something that I think the downstream actors uh, need to take care of. Yes, just Heidi, I think you wanted to weigh just, in. Um, I, I think um, we heard from Marie-Thérèse earlier that, um, that um, they're working together with uh, uh, the development actors like DG Infa in the European Commission. And this is very important because now what we hear from the Global South is that aha, yeah. uh -huh, this is yet another wave of uh, European imperialism. I mean, the, 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 the words are quite hard. Mm. and. Um, I believe that now is the last moment to really engage and, and, and give, give, you know, like uh, EU development assistance needs to be there. Capacity building, and yes. that's why I think <coughs> UNEC is doing a, a very good job. So, and another thing is that uh, when you go back down the value chain uh, upstream, and then um, the lower you go, my, uh, what I hear from companies is that the more useful this type of uh, uh, industry initiatives are, which can have the, the perfect tools to map the value chain. Sometimes um, um, a number of companies are sourcing from same factories so they can pull their forces, which is really important. But I have to say, and I, I said this this morning very early, I was speaking to Kuala Lumpur on uh, Responsible Glove Alliance on, on produce the world's biggest production country of rubber gloves like personal protection. Yeah. Um, um, equipment is that um, these kind of uh, initiatives that I, that they have now undertaken is useful. It's like a tool, but it does not. It's not going to exhaust their duty of due diligence. They still have to do that. I mean, certifications, wonderful, wonderful tools, but um, we definitely, uh, I, how I see it, we should not create a kind of a safe haven for companies to say, well, we had this certification, so everything should be fine. We cannot be made liable for any wrongdoings. 
And we know how unreliable many auditing systems are. So I think the companies have also to take their responsibility on, on what kind of uh, tools they use and still do the last mile on their own. Dan. Uh, I, I wanted to, to react briefly to, to this issue of um, you know, how, how this is perceived in non-EU countries across the globe, and in particular in, in, in developing countries. Because we, we hear a lot from them and we meet uh, them and so on. And um, yeah, th th there are concerns indeed uh, as to, you know, the, the a number of legislations that have been adopted by the EU. And of course, uh, you know, the, the, there, is, uh, there is an explanation behind uh, each of them. Uh, but I would say CSDD in particular uh, is, uh, is special in, in this landscape. That includes, uh, you know, other legislations on, on deforestation, on uh, um, conflict minerals, on, on forced labor. Uh, CSDD is is unique, uh, both uh, by by its ambition, you know, covering all sectors, uh, the entire value chains, but also the the nature of of the engagement that it fosters, because due diligence is really about investing. Uh, in your value chains, engaging with your value chains. So it, it's not about cutting and running. So that, that's a message that we are consistently sending. Actually, disengagement is a, a very last resort. And now this, uh, the, the discussions in the trilogues are, are very much in that spirit. And only under certain conditions, but only if all the due diligence uh, uh, steps that are, are uh, let's say, stipulated fail to, to bring results. So for third countries, in particular, when, when it comes to CSDD, they should not uh, fear disengagement. Of course, the, the case of uh, Uzbekistan is, is related to a ban, and this is related to changing, uh, reaccessing the market. So it's a bit different. But CSDD would apply to existing value chains and uh, we don't really see uh, this as, as, as at all as an incentive for companies to, to disengage. Pascal, yes. Yes, maybe uh, a few comments here. Uh, what we hear from our customers is that they really ask a lot of questions. What do we need to do? Where do we need to go? So they need a lot of guidance. So I think uh, from what I hear is that uh, you are really clear in terms of uh, what uh, the directive is, 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 uh, wants to achieve, but this has to be clearly communicated, and the clearer, the clearer will be the communication, the easier will be the implementation. And for those SMEs uh, that uh, are, will be exposed to additional uh, cost or uh, investments, uh, they have to really understand clearly what they have to achieve. Well, I think actually that's a good point to, to bring in a question from our audience, from Andrew Cave. He's saying that the intercommittee just published a study on the expected impacts, identifying considerable challenges for SMEs. Um, and Andrew is asking whether the trilogue will further simplify reporting requirements and protect against big businesses shifting compliance burdens onto SMEs. Um, perhaps, uh, Marie-Therese, just your thoughts on that, uh, even if we don't have a definitive answer. Well, yes, I can confirm <laughs> that this is going to be a challenge, that uh, it's an important one, especially 
I mean, for sectors where you have a large presence of uh, SMEs, I mean, even within the EU, this is exactly what we hear from them. The risk that this is a burden that is going to be shifted uh, from the uh, large corporations on them. That's why it's very important to, uh, in a way, um, you know, make accountable certainly uh, the large corporations, but uh, devise ways for them uh, to engage and to support uh, their suppliers uh, and um, uh, provide the coaching, the training, uh, the tech transfer, the skills transfer uh, that they will need. Uh, and often what we hear from these SMEs is that, okay, ready to uh, do the investment, to, to go uh, the, along the journey. Uh, incentives are important, a uh, price premium, but even more uh, long-term business relationships. So the possibility of getting assurance that once I do this investment, I go down the sustainability journey, I get the business, and this is a long-term business relation that I build with my clients. So ways of uh, somehow incentivizing that is very important. Heidi, you're a co-legislator, you can yeah, tell yeah, us. Well, well I, I think the concerns of the SMEs have been heard. Yeah. They have been very vocal. The voices have been, ex the concerns have been very, let's say, loudly uh, expressed to the extent that uh, at one point I thought that this would sort of uh, put the whole exercise into paper bin. But uh, this has not happened. And I, 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 of course, we don't know yet, but I, I don't, I think at maximum, the to extent to which uh, SMEs will be included in the scope will be very limited. But I have to say that the, the, the longer we work on this, the more we hear from SMEs who say that, look, we will be nevertheless uh, touched by this legislation. So why don't we have, uh, have us in the scope? So this is also a, a, a certain voice from SMEs. Uh, for instance, uh, you have a lot of small, uh, smallish um, textile, like garment brands, uh, to which uh, sustainability and uh, responsible business conduct are the essence of their brand. Mm -hmm. And they say, what happens to us? So it's, uh, I would say that uh, maybe uh, it takes a few years to, to see how this will settle with, uh, let's say, uh, a bit larger and la very large companies. And then there will be a review of the directive, by the way, in some years' time. So I think this is also an evolutionary path because Let's be honest, this is very demanding and it's very revolutionary, but I don't see another approach if we want to solve the global challenges. We need to have the private sector in, and that was the, the core idea of the UN Guiding Principles in 2011, like 12 years ago. So there's no way of saying that the companies should be somehow exempt from, uh, from finding solutions to poverty, uh, human rights violations, uh, uh, climate change. And so we are there on that path now, and it's a very important uh, point of that. Yeah, totally path. agree with that. I don't think that uh, they should be exempted. They need to be supported. Mm -hmm. And what we see is that in the, the upstream part of the value chain, often manufacturers are even more committed than the downstream brands and retailers. So mm -hmm. the willing is there, in, is there, and definitely even the leadership still they need mm -hmm. uh, you know the, we need to make sure that the burden is not uh, unduly shifted on that and on them and that they are duly supported an interesting question um, online from veronica rubio is asking how does the commission expect that all the investment needed to implement this directive will refund on prosperity and around and 
eradication of human rights, I think possibly eradication of human rights abuses. Um, is there a cost effectiveness study there that could be consulted if there is investment that needs to go into complying with this directive, I think is the question. Mm. Dan? Mm. I'm not sure if, if I understood correctly the question, which would be what is the investment required to, to eliminate uh, human rights abuses? Um, look, for, for us, I mean, the, the, of course, there, there is an impact assessment uh, underlying this initiative. Um, but the idea of, of CSDD is really to, to make sure that our economic model is not at odds with our societal model and with our values. So human rights are an absolute value uh, for, for, for the European Union. We cannot, uh, let's say, allow that, uh, you know, some business interests uh, take precedence over human rights considerations. So where will the money come from? Um, actually, you know, the, this is uh, the, the very, at uh, the very core of the discussion now, for instance, uh, on, on whether uh, the financial sector uh, will be covered and in what way. Uh, it's from, from the point of view of the Commission, and was, as was expressed uh, a number of times by, uh, by our Commissioner, uh, uh, Mr. Didier Reinders, including the finance uh, sector in the scope of the CSDD is important not only for their own impact, which is considerable, uh, in particular in their downstream uh, value chains, but also for ensuring that resources are directed towards the other sectors that will have to, to undertake this transition and to change their, to improve their business models, to, to make them more sustainable. There is an obligation also uh, instituted in the legislation for these large companies whom we are targeting and on which we are placing the obligations to invest in their value chains. And I, I want to, to be clear here. Yes, we've, we've discussed about SMEs being indirectly impacted, but uh, the legislation places the obligation, uh, the legal obligations, the, uh, the liability on these large companies that are within the scope. So, you know, we, we tell them uh, what, what they need to do um, and uh, we expect them to invest in their value chains. And then, actually, this will be an incentive also for them to, to stay in, in the longer term because if you, if you have built uh, a, a robust uh, value chain that you know that is, is, uh, is delivering, is shielding you from... Uh, you know, potential risks, uh, liability, and so on, uh, adverse impacts, then you, you have uh, an incentive to, to stay engaged with, uh, with your partners in that value chain. Vincent, <laughs> you've got the financial services uh, viewpoint for us. Yeah, exactly. I'm quite happy that Dan mentioned it because uh, he, he mentioned the question of impact, the question of supporting the, uh, the companies to, let's say, manage those uh, principal adverse impacts. And I think even beyond that for the financial sector, is the question of resilience. Do we ensure or do we want to ensure as well that the companies into which we are investing are resilient enough? And it is also passing through due diligence to make sure that they are not exposed to high adverse impact. Because here in this case, we are not just talking, when talking of adverse impact, of 
the adverse impact like we have in other financial regulation like SFDR, we often say uh, the financial sector is already subject to SFDR, is already managing and performing, performing due diligence on the, the adverse impact. But the point is that the due diligence is different and the adverse impacts are different. Into SFDR, we're rather talking of good practices, we're talking of greenhouse gas emissions, we're talking of gender equality. Here we are really talking of international conventions, we are talking of human rights. And I think that's something that is very important to acknowledge because we are really going into the, the, the core question that we want to invest into companies that are also subject to higher financial risk because they are exposed to, to adverse impact. And uh, just one last point as well to, to react to what Dan said. Uh, in the question of helping the companies to, to transition, uh, I think there's also a very important point on financial services is that into the text that was proposed at least by uh, the, the parliament, we presume that financial services will be linked to adverse impact but will not be causing or contributing to adverse impact. And in that sense, there will not be a requirement to end the contract or to end the investment. So it's more a question of how do we accompany as well the companies to manage and bring those adverse impact to an end. Well, staying with financial services, uh, Victoria Bourbon is asking, would a review clause on financial services, as, as there is in the deforestation regulation, um, in order to assess if or how the financial services should be covered by the text, could that be an option? Heidi? Well, uh, first of all, I think that the, uh, the Council came up with the most absurd idea that each member state could decide on their own whether financial services would be included. I don't know what kind of panic that was to come to some sort of what they call common approach, right? General, General approach. Uh, and uh, we know that France hates the idea of including uh, the finance sector. The parliament has been much more, let's say, focused on uh, sectors that, uh, that Vincent has mentioned. Uh, but um, I mean, let, let me just pick up a memory from 2018 when, uh, when Timmermans and uh, then Commissioner Katainen, they came up with the first uh, action plan on sustainable finance. And there I, I was very pleased to see that already then the connection to due diligence was made, that there could be no sustainable finance unless there was due diligence obligations for companies in which the in investments flow. So now to exclude um, the invest financial sector altogether would be, I think, really uh, totally against the idea of, uh, of the sustainable finance. So I hope that some, some uh, smart compromise will be found, but still we hear that France is very much against, which is, a, is a, I think it's a shame. Vincent, did you want to add a comment on that point? No, I totally agree as well with what has just been said. Well, you pointed out, therefore, that the difference between member states is one of the key factors that we're seeing coming up as, as a stumbling block, potentially, in trilogue. So, I mean, one of my basic questions is, how do we assure harmonious processes enforcement between the member states? It's a perennial question in the EU. Um, and what is interesting is that a, an online question has come in uh, from Sandavana Arbia asking Dan, is a directive the most appropriate legal tool for achieving the right balance among so many different and on, often conflictual interests um, of, of so many different stakeholders, different countries? I, mean, I presume uh, Sylvan is getting at the possibility that perhaps a regulation is more useful. Why was the, what was the thinking there? Yeah. Um, 
Here, the, the, the answer is, is quite straightforward. It, it's linked to uh, the legal base that we're using and the, the area that we're, uh, we're targeting. So it's, it's about company law. And this is where, uh, at the EU level, we regulate through directives. Um, there, there was also another discussion at some point whether you know, because with directives you can have a minimum harmonization or we can have a maximum harmonization. Shouldn't it be maximum harmonization? And here as well, um, you know, the reasoning is that, you know, maximum harmonization would basically mean capping what can be done, saying this is what you should do and not more than that. I mean, member states cannot impose uh, more requirements. And that's uh, very, I would say, unnatural for, for, for this area that we're trying to advance, sustainability and uh, human rights and protecting the environment. So it, it would basically mean, uh, you know, uh, forbidding uh, member states to, to go beyond, maybe to, to expand the scope. To the, so again, but, but then the question remains, how do we ensure that there is a level playing field? Because this is, this is a key question. And here uh, I, I can report that both co-legislators are uh, quite uh, focused on that, which is, which is very good. And uh, we're trying to find uh, the best uh, possible solutions for this. And there are different ways uh, in, 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 in which you can do that. So, uh, in terms of uh, consistent implementation and enforcement, for instance. Yeah. So we are, we are looking, for instance, to, to make sure that the provisions are clear enough so that you know, they don't lead to divergent interpretations, divergent uh, transpositions in member states. We will work, we are committed to work uh, with the member states to ensure that you know, there is as much of a harmonized uh, approach to implementation as possible. When it comes to enforcement, there are already uh, in the negotiations uh, discussions on how to, to make this uh, as, as uh, coherent across uh, the EU as possible. Um, the, there is also, uh, you know, part of the legislation is that uh, we will establish a European network of uh, supervisory uh, authorities. So these authorities that will be in charge with the enforcement so that they exchange uh, information and good practices to make sure that uh, you know, we're proceeding at, at the same pace. And actually, you know, we are also looking, we, we think the incentives will be uh, in such a way also for member states that will lead to uh, a rather harmonious approach so we are putting the, the level playing field in the sense that uh, we are creating this level playing field in the sense that we're, we're creating a floor where, you know, and we don't see a lot of incentive actually for, for member states to, to go uh, uh, much beyond that. And this will be, uh, let's say, an, an advancement uh, uh, together. Of course, there is also a review uh, down the line. So uh, we can also, uh, and there is discussion here, whether the review clause can also be used to uh, looking, uh, let's say, in the future that uh, possibly uh, still raising the floor, uh, putting even more harmonization there. But to make a long story short, these are the instruments that we have at our disposal, but we're trying to make the best possible use of them to achieve 
as much harmonization as possible. And actually, we, see, we th very much think that in practical terms, there will be a significant uh, degree of, let's say, consistent uh, approach uh, throughout the EU. I mean, our view may be cold comfort to companies who've already put in transition plans. Um, Pascal, am I right in thinking that the more divergent the interpretation, the more complicated inspection and certification is? And how optimistic are you that the, the, the interpretation in the different member states will be cohesion enough? Um, well, of course, I can't. We don't know. I don't know. We don't have the final text. We don't know. But I can say that uh, a few comments. We have the, the experience for many, many years with different standards, with certification, but also with consulting services helping. Uh, the, the principles that are brought in by the CSDDT uh, is, is new uh, in this, uh, this scale. But also we see that some brands, some large companies, they have already work, working with their supply chain. And this is for decades, because we have been helping them. Uh, I've had a chance to live in, uh, in developing countries, and we were providing this service, so we were going in, into the manufacturer, the SMEs, and there was already a partnership. So I believe this is the right track, and I think if there is political will, and, and if there is the, 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 um, the, the, sorry, the, um, the incentive for, for the industry in the market to access the market, then they will work, it will drive it. And, and I think we, we are just here to respond to this, to this uh, political will and, and to, to this momentum. A question uh, from Julian Fox is asking, how will this directive support a just transition? It seems that it could risk in companies moving sourcing to lower risk areas and disengaging from their current sourcing arrangements. Is this something that, Heidi, that you see is a possible pitfall? Yeah, but um, as uh, I think Dan said, um, what, what I definitely would want to keep in the final uh, version of this law is that um, there need to be a responsible disengagement and that this should be last resort. I don't think we can overemphasize it too much because we see already now um, garment brands uh, withdrawing from, uh, well, difficult situations. But I am, for instance, H&M uh, and uh, Inditex have left uh, Myanmar, which has the military coup since two and a half years. But I'm not at all convinced that is this the responsible way, because there are like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of women, poor women, who work in these garment factories and who will be left on their own in a situation which is not going to give them any options. So, so I think it's, uh, it's also something that uh, needs to be, let's say, scrutinized. And companies need to be, be made accountable for their decisions when they disengage. There will be situations where they can only do that. But I've seen too many times that companies, uh, let's say, they take ethical decisions. Uh, whereas, in fact, it's about their market, you know, like shrinking market and things like that. I, I, I could tell you examples, but I won't do it now. So responsible disengagement is, uh, is something that needs to be there. Uh, Marie-Thérèse, uh, another question from, uh, from our audience that perhaps you can tackle in a general sense. Alexandra Rodriguez-Cortez, who is, is from the uh, Colombian Agriculture and Rural Development Ministry, is saying, 
if there's an understanding of the particularities characterizing European companies, has the same consideration been given to the particular conditions of commodities providers globally? Do you think with this directive approach there has been that su a sufficient level of consideration? Well, I mean, certainly uh, while we are engaging with companies, even uh, small farmers, producers uh, in Latin America and many other areas of the world, um, we see the demands from them to get an understanding of uh, uh, how to comply. So there is an interest definitely to understand, I mean, to, to get uh, market access. So we go back to um, the point of coupling basically um, the requirements of such a directive with appropriate technical assistance and capacity building programs for upstream actors in developing countries uh, to support them in the effort they need to make uh, for, uh, for compliance. They demand uh, training, they demand to have awareness raising uh, um, uh, um, projects uh, to to understand uh, compliance. So definitely, I think that the two things uh, need to go yeah. hand in hand, and they don't exclude each other. They can support each other. So I, I would say that complementarity there it's very important. Dan, yes. yeah, so uh, a small footnote. In, in all fairness, you know, it should it should be said that we're we're not inventing something new here, and mm -hmm. it was mentioned before. Huh? So. Mm -hmm. This uh, legislation builds on uh, existing frameworks, which are voluntary. Mm -hmm. uh, but it uh, translates, uh, let's say, something that existed was out there. You know, uh, there were there, there are UN principles, there 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 are OECD uh, guidelines. So again, it, but it's now we we're trying to turn this into into a mandatory framework, into a binding framework. And we see this also happening, by the way, uh, you know, in other places and at, at global level. Uh, yeah, this true. Is a process. I hear from Japan. I hear from Bra even Brazil uh, are working United on similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Can by the way, uh, I think um, what I, I, I th see uh, necessary is that uh, markets are global, so we would need, at the end of the day, we need global standards. And uh, to my knowledge, the only platform now to work on, on a global, let's say, UN-based convention on business and human rights, as much as we, let's say, uh, were displeased with what happened since 2014 in Geneva on this legally binding instrument on, on uh, transnational companies and, and, and how does it go on. But I think now would be the, the right moment for the EU to, to join uh, these negotiations because we have something to show and share. And I think we have, uh, for many years, uh, the EU has been a kind of, a, let's say, a constructive critic to this process. But uh, I think uh, we could uh, leave our handprint on it. and. Uh, so um, what I would like to see is that there would be a, a proper EU mandate to, to join these negotiations once we are ready with, with the CSDVD. Um, a slightly political question down from Zoe Trulika. Um, I don't know whether you'll want to answer it. Um, Ursula von der Leyen announced that the European Commission will work on legislative proposals to reduce reporting requirements by 25% in her State of the Union address. Will this have an impact on the final text of the directive currently negotiated? How do those two things square together? Yeah. Uh, 
I've heard this question <laughs> a few times already. Um, so that the short answer to this is um, uh, that CSDD, as I mentioned, I mean this initiative is, is really about uh, behavioral change that we, we're seeking from companies. It, it does not refer to reporting. I mean, it touches upon reporting, but it's mostly covered in, in another legislation that is already out there huh? and is adopted, uh, the, the CSRD. Uh, that, that's the, the short question. Of course, w I can confirm that the Commission is working on this and we're, we're part of a, of a very serious mapping exercise uh, that uh, is, is trying to implement exactly this, uh, this pledge. But I would say don't look at the CSDD as, as a bringing, um, you know, by itself a huge uh, reporting burden on, on companies because it's, it's not about reporting. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of questions that are, are making essentially the same point from Elsa Grun and Jakob Winkler are talking about retailers at the end of the supply chain or those in more complex industries. We've mentioned the garment industry, but that's a relatively simple product. Um, it's not. It has a lot, of, uh, <laughs> a lot of enterprises in their supply chain. It's not simple. Well, they're saying, it's, um, well, uh, an example is cars, for instance, may have de dealt with uh, thousands of uh, different suppliers and very many ingredients in different products. How do those companies with the very ultra complex supply chains how are they expected to comply with this directive it's a it's a it's a good question mm. but it, it, I think the focus is there on, on more complicated uh, supply chains uh, Marie Therese would you like to give us uh, your thoughts on that well I, I think the the from what we see um, the important step is really to start from getting visibility uh, of your supply chain, who uh, you are, uh, your suppliers are, and where they are located. I mean, you were referring to the need of doing a risk analysis. If you are sourcing in a certain from a certain geographical area, you don't have the same risk than if you are sourcing from another geographical area. So mitigating strategies are going to be very, very different. So the starting point is really know your value chain, uh, engage uh, with your uh, partners and suppliers uh, and work with them uh, to uh, mean uh, the, the right mitigation strategies uh, so that's um, of course I mean the more complex uh, the value chain and fragmented and global is the more complicated it is but uh, well I don't see another way Pascal um, a question on from Kansan uh, Motre uh, saying since there is an agreement uh, that the obligations should be as clear as possible, shouldn't Article 15 contain clear and detailed requirements as to the content of transition plans, including short, mid and long-term targets? Uh, what's your thoughts on, on that Article 15 transition plans nuance? Um. You're not going to answer no, that. <laughs> okay. I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, I won't be... Vincent, um, I think you have uh, thoughts on this, however. Exactly. Um, I will say, uh, and that was, I think, the approach of the parliament, is let's make sure that we reuse what has been included into CSRD. And in, in that context, what we want to make sure is whether or not we're including additional requirements in one or the other file, we just need to make sure that we're talking of the, the, the same plan. And so in that context, 
I do see eventually an interest to, well, there is a need for clarifying what should be into transition plans, but the question is, should it be into a cross-sectoral regulation? At the moment, we are developing, let's say, targets per sector. Financial services are, of course, also wondering how they they're going to develop the transition plans, how they're going to make sure that it is consistent between the, the different financial institutions. Should it be there? Um, to, be, to be honest, I'm not sure. I would tend to say that we need also to wonder what should be included as well into the uh, delegated acts, for example, of uh, the prudential requirements for CRR, CRD, what do we want to include in there? I know that the prudential requirements is mostly, or is focusing on financial uh, risk aspects, not on impact, mm -hmm. but I think there's probably other legislations, and this is not only in even one of those three uh, texts, I think for financial services it will be it will pass through a revision of the shareholder right directive, for example, to see how we, the companies, the, in, in the investors can engage with the investee companies and mm -hmm. use the shareholder rights to ensure that the, the companies into which they're investing are, on the one hand, setting clear targets that are aligned with the Paris Agreement and also that they are meeting those targets. Well, we've got into the weeds now. That's really getting into the technical questions. Um, and I should say that I've left the most overwhelming question until last is about 10, 12 people all asking the same thing, which is about the timeline, Heidi. Um, everyone is saying, has the Spanish presidency deprioritized this? Is it going to happen before the end of the year? Uh, the, honestly, this is all online. This is the one thing people want to know. Can you give us a hint? Well, it's a trilogue, which means that there are three parties, mainly council and parliament, but assisted very much uh, uh, in a, I think in a constructive and very creative way by the European Commission, but um, I can only say that uh, it's not the lack of ambition by the European Parliament which would stop this being finalised by the end of the year. And I think uh, we very much respect Commissioner Reinders who has also appealed to all of us that uh, we only have a few months to go this legislature and it will be, I think it would be a really pity to to waste this uh, front-runner opportunity that the EU now has, and which is already having spillover effects in, in the world. So we'll do our utmost. And I, I think it's doable, because I can see that the discussions are kind of starting to, to come to some sort of, uh, yeah. Because, uh, of course, there needs to be a compromise. And there are some elements which are more important than others. Not everything will be stay in the text, perhaps. Dan, do you have a thought as, a, as the facilitator of the dialogue, as the representative? Of course, I am, I'm very happy uh, to, to hear Mrs. Hautala. But just, just to confirm that... It, it, too optimistic? No. no. <laughs> I, 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 just to confirm that, uh, you know, th there's certainly not deprioritization. Dep no. There's a huge effort going in. I mean, I, I have colleagues who, who are in technical meetings, uh, you know, day after day after day. So it's, the, the pace is, is really intensive. It's just that it's, it's an ambitious, complex legislation, but we're getting there. So for, for the commission, it's, uh, you know, Commissioner Reinders has said it very clearly. It's, it's uh, one of the, the main priorities, and uh, we're, we're looking uh, forward. We, we keep our eyes on the ball, and uh, we're looking forward to, to the prize uh, within this uh, mandate, certainly.
Well, I think then to wrap up, I'll ask each of you for your aspirations for the directive and any hurdles you think that we should keep our eyes on in the coming months. Uh, Pascal, let me start with you. Where do you see the huge benefits, the overall hopes, a kind of takeaway point that you'd like to leave our audience with? Um, sorry. <laughs> I, was, um, I think the... Um, there, there is an, a need to, 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 to be as clear as possible in terms of guidance. That's, that's really the message I receive from the customer. So, mm -hmm. so this is the, the main concern. And we uh, are trying to be as ready as we can to, to, to make this a successful process. Um, I will say that there is a learning curve in, in every of these process. We, we, we want to be part of it. We want to contribute to learn. This is the principle that we have with many standards or many what we call quali uh, quality management system is that we try to bring a minimum compliance level and we try to always continuous improvement. And, and maybe this is uh, uh, something that could be considered uh, for, for smooth and successful implementation. Vincent, uh, your message towards the trialogue as we wrap up our discussion. I think uh, I will maybe focus on, on two specific points. Uh, the first one is keep financial institution in the scope, keep it the way it has been proposed by the parliament. Uh, I think this is, uh, on the one hand, it is actionable, it is a good compromise. Uh, it is taking into account as well the specificities of the asset management and the, the I would say, uh, institutional investors' activities. We do not have the same liability behind. and. Uh, Maybe on the second point as well, it's on remuneration. We haven't talked so mm -hmm. much uh, of it. I think this is important that we keep uh, that specific Article 15.3 uh, that basically says that we need to align or to link the variable remuneration of directors with the achievement or with the transition plans. Uh, I think this is important. It is uh, important that we, we keep the... Uh, companies and the management really committed. This is not such a heavy requirement. I'm typically thinking of the financial institutions. If we look into what they're already applying in terms of KPI scorecards, they're used to already have very strict requirements in terms of um, variable remuneration, and the impact is very low in the sense that we're not mm -hmm. setting minimum thresholds, saying minimum percentage of the remuneration that has to be attributed to transition plans, we're not neither saying if you are meeting 95% of your target, you get zero. This is not what it is saying at the moment. So I think it leaves a lot of flexibility and it has to stay into the text. Maria, Teresa, uh, a final uh, word from your very, side? Um, just to conclude, I mean, the, the world is watching at the EU because this is a very ambitious, uh, um, I would say, effort uh, to contribute really to the achievement of the sustainable development goals and the climate agenda. So bravo to the European Union. Uh, it's very important at the same time, since these aims uh, at fighting, addressing risks and impacts that are happening often outside and mostly outside the EU, mm -hmm. I would say it's very important that this agenda is brought at the global level, the UN is there to support it, it's important that the EU plays an important role. Uh, you know, in these kind of platforms and that proper engagement uh, is uh, with uh, other important partners, producing countries, uh, raw material producers, uh, along whole value chains. Mm. And another final word, 
sustainability agenda, we believe, should go hand in hand with the digital agenda. This is an important conclusion of the Commission session this year of ECE in April. Uh, innovation, advanced technologies, digitalization, they promise to cut on costs uh, and complexity of compliance, so very important also to have these two agendas uh, going hand in hand. Uh, and uh, uh, well, I see effort also there at the EU level that needs to go also at global level. Mm -hmm. Heidi, a busy few months ahead for you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think it was Pascal who said that there is a trend and this, uh, this exercise follows uh, a trend that is a serious one. And it's, it's uh, something that the smart companies uh, will need to pick up. And uh, the best of them have already done it, as it was said, some, some years back, maybe ten, at least 10 years back. But um, uh, I think uh, now it's time to look at the business models, uh, to look at um, how high uh, on the, the, let's say, the corporate uh, um, ladder this whole question of responsible business conduct is because uh, I think we are far beyond the time when you know you had an environmental manager sitting somewhere on, on the you know uh, completely out of touch with the board and and this is not anymore what is enough so each company should look into their structures I hope there will be some remuneration to, to, to do because actually very few companies do have remuneration including uh, responsible business conduct. It's, if, it, if it is uh, something to that direction, it's like customer satisfaction, but that's so old-fashioned mm -hmm. alone. I mean, it's important, but it, it's not enough. And then uh, maybe the last thing is that in this um, uh, work, um, I think companies need to converse with their stakeholders, you know, affected stakeholders, because even the, well, the critics can be the best advisors. So also to get out of the boardroom and, uh, and uh, go to the field and see how the company impacts its, its envir operating environment with different stakeholders, whether it's uh, workers or, or environment or indigenous peoples or whatnot, and, and how the operating environment affects the company. I think this is the beauty of this exercise, that it goes both ways. Dan, the finish line in sight, but there's never really a finish line, is there? <laughs> yeah, no, actually, uh, you know, we're thinking uh, with it's, it's a new uh, stage in our work that will start after adoption because there, there, there's a lot of work to do to, to accompany the implementation. But uh, I would say a message uh, maybe to, to the industry, to the companies out there, um, two parts of it. One is to, to reassure them that we're not asking for absurd things, we're asking for things that are doable, that make sense, and, you know, that, that, that are for a good purpose. Uh, they build on things that some of them are already doing uh, or, or know about, are familiar with. And then there is also an opportunity to, to grasp here. So we know sustainability also makes business sense. Investing in, in sustainable value chains is good also for, for the business. You know, there, there is evidence on this, there is ample evidence. And we see actually in the conversation that we have with the industry and quite a lot with the financial sector actors of, of different types, 
we see uh, that also the, the, the conversation has, has shifted uh, to, to a more constructive one. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not something to be scared of. It actually might uh, be a, a very good thing building, going for, we believe it will be, for, for European business and for those who, who will embrace uh, the, the sustainability agenda. So uh, I'm optimistic that uh, you know, this uh, will really have a, a create a, a traction effect and uh, an emulation uh, also for, uh, for the business community. Well, thank you, Dan, Heidi, Maria, Teresa, Vincent, and Pascal. Thank you so much for your insights. And thank you to the entire Euractive team and the TIC Council. And, of course, you, the audience, for your insightful questions. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion. And if you want to see more Euractive debates, please do follow the hashtag EADebatesOnline. We hope to see you again soon. Have a great evening.